Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I mentioned that I was um, just down at Palm Springs, uh, actually uh, at the um, Joshua Tree Retreat Center, which we've called Yucca Valley for many years. The, the retreat center is right in between Yucca Valley and Joshua Tree. Uh, and uh, so we often say, oh, we're down at Yucca Valley. Uh, it's a retreat center that we've held retreats now. Uh, Jack, I, who, who's just starting retreat tomorrow, he was with us uh, yesterday. He said he's been, uh, this is his 37th year going down there. Um, I was there for 21 years in a row. I, I haven't, I don't go back as much these days, but it was really great being down there um, doing this. Second of a two-year, second retreat uh, of five in this two-year program that um, I'm leading with uh, Sharda Rogel and Frank Ostaseski from Meta Institute, along with uh, Anna Douglas, Bob Stahl, and Angie Stevens, if you know those names, uh, called uh, The Heavenly Messengers Awakening Through Illness, Aging, and Death. Um, and there, it's called The Heavenly Messengers. Uh, probably many of you are familiar with that term. Those are the, the sites that woke the Buddha up uh, and a sick person, an aging person, and a, a corpse um, that made him leave the palace to see where true happiness lies. The fourth messenger is an ascetic monk who uh, had renounced the world and was looking for um, the highest happiness. And, uh, and so the prince, Siddhartha, was motivated by those messengers that were said to be sent from the heaven realms uh, to wake up the prince and see, hey, this is, uh, these are the facts of life. Uh, and that these three things, illness, aging, and death, do wake us up from our complacency and thinking, oh, well, life is hunky-dory. Not that we have that thought all the time, but uh, that... Uh, when we realize that suffering is an intrinsic part of life, we start to see, well, where can true happiness be found? So we have, we've put this training program together. As I said, it's a, a two-year training program for about 85 people, 85 or 90 people. Um, and uh, there for the last week, and it's been quite... Extraordinary. One of the best things about about it is uh, that a sense of cr- community gets created, uh, particularly as we have been exploring some pretty pretty heavy duty stuff. It's kind of fascinating how, as the Buddha saw, the more you go into the places that scare you, that's the 
title of the Pema Chodron book, by the way, The Places That Scare You, a really good book. The more you go into the places that scare you, the less afraid you are and the more you come to connect with a place of fearlessness and courage and wisdom and transform what would be unsettling and unnerving, uh, transform your relationship to suffering into compassion. Uh, And doing it with like-minded friends is very powerful and it was quite extraordinary as people were so authentic and now we've gotten to know each other uh, for uh, oh, about six months or so now and uh, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So I, I thought I'd share with you a, a discourse that's kind of keeping in the theme of that retreat and this program um, the uh, discourse is the advice to Anatta Pindika in the Maji Mandakaya, which is the middle-length discourses. Uh, it's number 143 out of 152. Um, and I'll just give you a little bit of background around Anatta Pindika if you're not familiar with that name. Uh, he was a very wealthy uh, businessman um, one of the richest men uh, from the richest families. He was a banker, uh, and uh, but he uh, he had a heart of gold, even more than uh, even more than his wealth. And when he encountered the Buddha, he was so inspired that he became his biggest patron, and. Uh, was the, the the great provider for uh, for the Buddha's um, needs and the the Sangha's needs, as uh, Wendy so beautifully talked about um, generosity. Anattapindika was the embodiment of generosity. A lot of the discourses, it said, um, uh, took place in the Jetta Grove, and the Jetta Grove was. Um, the prime place for the Buddha to, um, to practice each year at the rains retreats. Uh, there's a three-month three period where because it rains a lot, instead of wandering around, the, the Sangha would stay put in one place for three months. And that's still the custom in Theravadan Buddhism, the rains retreats or vasas, um, and that's why we have a three-month retreat each year in, uh, at IMS uh, in that same, uh, that same um, custom. And the Jetta Grove was provided by Anattapindika. The story goes that he saw this incredible, perfect place for the retinue of uh, the, the monastic Sangha to stay, and so he, he, he said he wanted to buy it for, uh, for the Buddha, and the and the Sangha, and the the guy who owned, the grove did not want to sell it. He said no way. He said please, I've got to buy it. No way. 
And he said, name your price, anything you want. And as the story goes, the, the owner said, uh, okay, if you cover it with gold, I'll sell it to you. Not thinking it would be possible. Anatta Pindaka covered it with gold. Supposedly, what was it? I read 1.8 million gold pieces. You know, they, they exaggerate in some of these stories. But the, 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 the idea that he, there was nothing that was going to get in the way of him providing, and that became the Buddha's main um, seasonal retreat center. So you can see, Anatta Pindaka was of great importance, the prime patron of the Buddha. And this discourse takes place as Anattapindaka is um, near the end of his life. And he became very, very ill. And he says to his, um, to one of his uh, uh, attendants, one of, one of his uh, close friends, he says, go to the Buddha, pay your respects, Tell him uh, how grateful I am uh, for his teaching and his place in my life. And then go to Sariputta, who is the Buddha's main disciple, who um, Anattapindika was very close with. And he said, tell Sariputta to come and see me because I'm not in such good shape. Um, and as I saw one footnote where Anattapindaka didn't want to bother the Buddha, he didn't want to have him come. He felt a little bit shy about that. But he said, well, his main disciple, I could come. You know, he's, he's a good friend. Tell him I'm having a hard time. So Sariputta comes with Ananda, who is uh, the Buddha's attendant and also one of the main disciples, and comes and visits Anattapindaka. And uh, he asks, uh, how you doing, basically? And he says, uh, um, let's see. I hope you're getting, an, uh, sorry, Puta says, I hope you're getting well. I hope you're comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And that their subsiding is apparent. And Anattapindika replies, uh-uh. Venerable Sariputta, I'm not getting well. I'm not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Just as if, and then he goes into some uh, graphic similes, as there can be in these, these teachings. It's like a strong man, as if a strong man was splitting my head open with a sharp sword. So too, these violent winds cut through my head. I'm not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too there's violent pains in my head. I'm not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I'm not getting well. Just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals. He was having a hard time. 
so too there's a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. I'm not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Mm. So then Sariputta gives him a teaching. He says, then, my friend, you should train thus, train this way. I will not cling to the I and my consciousness will not be dependent on the I. Thus you should train. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose, tongue, body. I will not cling to the mind and my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. Thus you should train. I will not cling to forms. I will not cling to sounds, odors, flavors, tangibles, mind objects, and my consciousness will not be dependent on on these. Thus you should train. I will not cling to eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness. I won't cling to mind consciousness and my consciousness will not be dependent on those. Thus you should train. I will not cling to eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact. I will not cling to mind contact. I will not cling to feeling, feelings born of eye contact. Feeling being pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. A few weeks ago, we talked about the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And so he's going through now the five aggregates. I won't cling to feelings, to the pleasantness or unpleasantness. I won't cling to um, um, perceptions. I won't cling to my thoughts, mental formations. I won't cling to anything. Thus you should train. And he goes on and on. I won't cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, and examined by the mind. He says, train in this way. Don't cling to any of it. And then... As he said this, Anattapindaka started to weep and shed tears as he heard it. And Ananda asked him, are you foundering? Are you sinking? Is it getting worse? And he said, no, I'm not foundering. I'm, I'm not sinking, Venerable Ananda. Although I've waited long upon the teacher, upon the Buddha, and bhikkhus worthy of esteem, although I've been a patron for, for many, many years, I've never before heard such a talk on the Dharma. Don't cling to any of this. Now, you might ask, what do you, what do you mean? That's what the Buddha kept on talking about all the time. However, Here's, here's maybe a, a nuance that you might not have been familiar with. Sariputta says, 
such talk on the Dhamma like this, we've not given to lay people before. Such talk on the Dhamma, we've been just giving to those who've gone forth. We've just given it to the monks and the nuns up to this point. Because, as it's, as it's said in the footnote, the Buddha thought that as a householder that it would be too confusing to ask them to let go of all their attachments and, and function in the world. So he was, this is just a really interesting point, so he was holding back on the, the deeper teachings because he thought it would be too hard to handle. Anattapindika says, in response to this, well then, Venerable Sariputta, please, let such talk on the Dhamma be given to lay people as well. There are clansmen, lay people, with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand this. Then, after giving Anattapindika this advice, the Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Ananda rose from their seats and departed. Soon after they left, the householder Anattapindika died and reappeared, as it said, into Sita heaven. And then it's also said, as the discourse goes, that he was reborn uh, as a young god in the heaven realms, and he comes back shortly after and visits the Buddha. And, uh, and, the, and the Buddha says, uh, well, here, this is what the young god Anattapindika said, uh, and he gives him this teaching Oh blessed one is this is this Jetta's, oh blessed is this Jetta's grove dwelt in by the sagely sangha where resides the king of dhamma the buddha the fount of all my happiness by action knowledge and dhamma by virtue and noble way of life by these are mortals purified not by lineage or wealth therefore a wise person who sees what truly leads to his own good should investigate the Dhamma and purify himself with it. Sariputta has reached the peak, become fully enlightened in virtue, peace, and wisdom's ways. Any bhikkhu who's gone beyond at best can only equal him. This is what he's saying to the Buddha. And the Buddha approves. He says, yes, that's, that's right. And he kind of gives him his seal of approval and tells others that, Anattapindika visited him in his reborn state. Whether or not you, you don't have to take that literally, just take whatever is useful, leave the rest. But from that point on, the Buddha started teaching this teaching to lay people. So one thing that I get from that is how interesting the Buddha 
might not have had the best judgment in that. And then he realized, oh, maybe lay people can handle it. And he started teaching that to lay people as well. So Anatta Pindika really had great merit, not just for providing for the Buddha and the Sangha, but allowing for those teachings to be given to lay people. Let's look at the teachings to not cling to this body, not cling to the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, feelings in the body, thoughts in the mind, to not cling to any of it. And then he somehow was able to get beyond his, his pain. Now, be nice if somebody like Sariputta came and visited you when you're having a hard time and said, oh, just don't cling, it'll be okay. Uh, easier said than done, as, uh, as we were hearing for this last week down in, at the retreat. But there's something very profound about the possibility of a shift of consciousness where you are not so immersed in the pains that you're experiencing. And you shift it from, oh, what a drag, this is too much, I can't stand this, to, oh, look what's happening to me. Look what's happening to this thing that I call my body or my mind, my thoughts. Anybody have that experience where you shift your relationship, when you're going through a lot of really hard stuff, whether in your body or in your mind, and somehow there's a slight shift of perspective and you watch yourself going through a hard time saying, wow, look at that hard time you're going through and you're not completely immersed in it. If you, if you get a sense of what I'm talking about, how many people have had that experience? So it's, it's possible. Now, might not be on your deathbed, although the interesting thing is it quite well can be. And I've seen myself, and perhaps you have, there's something extraordinary that can often happen with people who are near the end of their life and their body seems like it's racked with pain that at some point, and often it's shortly before they go, that they're no longer experiencing the suffering and there's a brightness that comes over them. Anybody has been around that in somebody passing away? Yeah, it's, it's a very common natural thing where all of a sudden there's a shift in consciousness. I kind of think of it as one of the most 
one of the indications that there is genuine compassion in this life that we can actually leave the pain of our body and not be so completely immersed in that contraction and see. When people have near-death experiences, it's very common. All of a sudden, they're, they're up in the, on the ceiling in the hospital room and seeing all the doctors racing around like crazy. And sometimes it's a near-death experience and then they come back in their body and say, oh, wow, what was that? but that there's a, a way that we can actually have a different perspective even in the middle of our body going through its pains. So it's possible a shift of perspective that sees, oh, I am not this body. And even more, oh, I'm not this mind. I'm not this fear that's been engulfing me. Oh, I'm not this sense of loss and grieving and sadness. Oh, look at that. There's an awareness that can look at it and see and notice and not be it. And that awareness can hold anything. And this is what the Buddha is talking about, that we are not this body and five physical senses. Certainly it's part of who we are, but it's not, that's not the whole story. And to shift your identity from this body and this mind and to not cling, when he says to not cling is another way of saying to not take ownership of this as being who I am, that I'm something even more than this body or mind. So I thought for a little while, um, before we have a conversation about this, I would invite you to have a conversation with, um, with each other for a few minutes, I'd like you to reflect on this and then have a little bit of a chance to hear your own wisdom and hear somebody else's. And don't worry if you're, if you're thinking, oh, maybe I don't have enough wisdom to do a, a, a triad. Don't worry about it. Just be right where you are. But I'd like you to um, go inside, close your eyes, and think of perhaps a time where you were going through a hard time either in your body or your mind and somehow you opened up to the perspective that I'm not I'm more than just this body or mind. And maybe you got a glimpse of what it was like to not cling or take that to be your identity.
And if you haven't had that experience, if it's not quite accessible to you, uh, that's okay. Just imagine what it might mean to not cling to the physical form or the thoughts or perceptions, likes, dislikes that come through the mind. Because this is where he says freedom can be found. And even if it's just a conceptual idea, just to get a, a taste of what that might look like. Okay, and then I'd like you to just turn to a couple of other people and uh, just have a conversation of perhaps your own experience or if not your experience, just what you might sense not clinging to these thoughts or this body might be like. And we'll just talk for, oh, maybe about 10 minutes or so, and then we'll come back together as a, as a group. So you can just turn to somebody near you. It can be a couple of people. And you can, can be four if you want. So you can, uh, you can have a group of four right here. You might sit up and do it. So what came up for you about this idea of not clinging to your, your body or your, your mind? <clears throat> There's a lot of conversation here, a lot of energy. So something must have come up. <clears throat> and uh, Eve, why don't you say yeah. So we don't know. It can be really invisible what, what somebody's internal reality is. Um, and from the outside, we, we, we can't see. So, and we might have some one kind of identity about them or a uh, way that we hold them, but it could be quite different from the inside. Okay, thank you. Okay, so. <laughs> Very good. Um, who else? Just well, my reflection on this process is I know the whirling mind. Then I know that if I really get concentrated on my breath, I can quiet my mind and find a, a resting place in it. And then I probably can go to sleep. Well, no, I I wake up in the middle of the night to meditate. But then I notice that when I wake up, that whirling mind is back before I have any knowledge of it.
Does that make sense? So you're when, you, when I wake up, my mind is already whirling, whirling again. I, I mean, is, is that what you expect? Or, or I mean, I, I hear what you're talking about, and I, I don't think that I make it that way. It, it's, it's not so much trying to make it any way. Um, it's just a shift of perspective that sometimes can happen when you're not caught in the middle of your rumination about what's happening. So it's just, it's, you're not trying hard. If you try hard to not be your thoughts, you know, just try to get all of those thoughts out of your head right now. Try really hard. They're not going anywhere. Uh, you find that you can make them go away. Ah, okay. Well, that's different. Concentrating on your breath is different than trying to make your thoughts go away. It can be a skillful means that has that result. So one way to not be continually swept up by the thoughts is to turn your attention towards something else, like the breath. So that's, that can be a skillful means. And in that moment, actually, it's one of, the, one of the gifts of mindfulness of breathing is that you're withdrawing the attention from the stories that the mind is creating. You don't, ha- you don't have to stop the stories. In fact, the more you try to stop the stories, the more you give them energy but you're just withdrawing your attention away from saying, oh, what a drag this is, or how pathetic I am, or what, a, what you can fill in the blank about who you are or how it is, to just turning the attention to something else. When we're caught up in our stories, that's called identifying with our thoughts. And when we turn our attention to something that's actually happening, other than the stories, in that, at that point, you're not identifying with the, with the stories. It can come back really fast, but every, just to know it's just a half breath away, no matter how lost you are, it's just a half breath away turning your attention to see what's real. The corollary to that is no matter how clear you are, getting lost in your thoughts is just a half breath away as well. So it's like a binary function. You're either here or you're not here. But that's pretty good because when you realize, oh, I'm lost, oh, and now I'm found. You know, or now I realize the truth. So. My one comment is it's about 15 minutes. It takes about 15 minutes for... You, okay, so you say it takes fif- about 15 minutes for you to, to come back to the breath. I would just, and, and you, that might be something that you find is commonly that way. I would, I would just encourage you not to um, hold that as a hard and fast rule or theorem. You might be surprised, because particularly if you say to yourself, 
oh, this is going to take 15 minutes for me to get back. That, that might, or if you have in your mind, oh, that you might be pre-qualifying the possibility. And in a moment, I, what, what happens actually, and what they've shown in research with mindfulness, I think we talked about this in, in uh, the last few weeks, there's this refractory period while you, where you're out of your mind, so to speak, when you're lost. And mindfulness has been shown through lots of research that it shortens the refractory period where you're completely gone. And so just to know that the direction often in practice is that though the, the time that you get lost becomes shorter and shorter. And as, as I've said many times, press the right button, I can be back in third grade. You know, Judgment, paranoia, little boy, whatever. But it's very different now than it was when I first started practicing because after not that long, it's like, oh, yeah, freaking out. Oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> Having a meltdown. Oh, look at that. And that shortens over time, or often can. Any anything else that comes up? Turn your off. Oh, hang on. Wait, wait. wait. Okay. Um, what has helped me step out of the pain is is curiosity. And if, when I'm able to remember, when I remember to do that, if I can step back and look at what's happening with curiosity and say, oh, oh, when that happened, it brought up more grief or more pain. And, oh, look at that. This is how this is working. Or what's, what's this process of grief going to look like now? And when I'm able to look at it with curiosity, I'm able to not be the pain. You got that off. Turn that off. Mine's on. Oh, yeah, I'm on, yeah. Uh, excellent. And that is a very skillful means. Investigation, which is one of the factors of enlightenment, when you're curious, you're not identifying with wherever your mind is going. Oh, look at that. Because there's a part of you, you can almost see, hear in that. Oh, look at that that there's an awareness that's just interested in discovering in that moment you're not identified with. You are the awareness that's just checking it out. Very different than being in the movie and getting lost. So curiosity is a key. Curiosity, sense of humor is another one. Wow. Look at the mind do its thing. God, you know. It's another way where you're bigger than the heaviness in the story. Lots of different ways. Having some compassion or loving kindness. I, I'm, I'm, I'd rather have it come from you but because it's, it's the end of, uh, uh, of the time we have to go. I'll just mention a few before we, before we end. Having some self-compassion that says, oh, wow, you're going through such a hard time. That in itself, you're not identified with the story. You're the, kind, you're the Kuan Yin. You're the, 
the, the compassionate being that's saying, wow, you're going through a really hard time now. That in itself gives some space. And also having the wisdom to see, oh, these thoughts are just empty. As I've shared before, Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, has a, a really good instruction. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts and you're meditating in a room full of people, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> Who knows where these thoughts come from? Is it coming out of nowhere to know and disappearing into nowhere? Any one of those compassion, um, curiosity, awareness, seeing how empty the thoughts are, you are no longer clinging to those thoughts. And even it's possible to not be clinging to this body as it's going through what it goes through. So uh, play around with it. It was good enough for Anatta Pindika to uh, become enlightened and become a god in, in the heaven realms. So... Who knows what can happen with you? So let's just a uh, very, very short loving kindness uh, and appreciate the fact that you're coming here on a Thursday night and wanting to grow in your heart and in your mind. And uh, wish yourself well. May I see through my confusion and connect with all the wisdom and love right inside. May I share my love well and wake up to the true the truth of who I am and then extending this out may all come to awaken to their true nature and share their love well and may our time here together be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all know the highest happiness and peace. Thank you very much. <clears throat> have a great week. Remember next week we're going to have that, uh, that film. I highly recommend it. So uh, hope to see you there.